Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Quinn. And hello to you, dear listener. Welcome to Viral, the show where we talk about public health, plagues, and the people who work often behind the scenes to keep us healthy and safe. Before we get into today's show, into today's show, we want to remind you to check us out at www.viral-pod.com, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, please review us on iTunes. We are a relatively new show, so these ratings are super important. We seriously read every single review and and cry about them. Or, um, like, if I need to pick me up, mm-hmm. just go on iTunes and I read those reviews. So, if you could please uh, review us on iTunes, it also helps people um, find our show because we want more people to listen, so they can have the opportunity to fall in love with public health, like all of us have. Yeah. Um. Also, if you would like to submit a public health fact, please message us on Facebook or leave a comment on our website because we will read it on the show. So you might be a celebrity, which is pretty cool. Yeah. A celebrity in this very small microcosm of podcasts. Um, I also wanted to mention that Health Impact Partners has just released this really awesome tool. Um, It's the Health Equity Guide. It's at healthequityguide.org. And really, it's uh, a new resources, a new resource that's meant to help health departments, um, you know, I guess guide them through the process of addressing racial justice and other health inequities that are driven by um, racial uh, disparities. So if you work at a health department or if you have friends that work at a health department, um, this is a really great tool, and we just kind of wanted to give it a little uh, little bump on the show. And finally, you can still win a T-shirt, guys. I, I still have, like, they're really nice T-shirts. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about, like, Gildan, no offense, Gildan, but, like, they're not scratchy. They're really soft, and they're, like, artisan screen printed, okay? They are. Like, artisan yep they're beautiful they're really soft if that's like i know for me texture is a big deal so um so you can still win a t-shirt or you can just buy a t-shirt if you don't even want to go through the process of competing with other awesome people to get a t-shirt you can just buy a t-shirt um we really just want to try and get as many people sign up for the email newsletter so we can just get as many public health nerds on board you know we love you guys um, yeah. So please feel free to sign up for the show. You could win a t-shirt. You will get a sticker. We're actually sending out stickers this week to people who've already signed up. We are. Um, so yeah, get a sweet t-shirt to go with it. And I think that's enough housekeeping. Yeah. House kept. Sure is. We Mischief s- managed. So today we are talking about cancer. Not Oh, so it's an astrology episode? Well, no. Oh. Not that. Uh, that'll be our episode about crabs. Oh, great. I can't wait. Ha, 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 This is actually the time of cancer. I am a cancer. Like, the astrology I'm symbol. Like, you sure are. Not an uncontrolled cell growth. <laughs> uh, fun fact, I'm a Gemini, so I'm very indecisive. Right. So this is kind of a big topic for our little show, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. But we're going to try to kind of dip our toes in the water a little. And after this uh, short little introduction, we are going to play an interview where you got to sit down with some scientists at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa to talk about the important research they do. Yeah, so it, it, it was a really great... A discussion forum for these epidemiologists to really talk about their research because they're obviously really excited about it and they know best about what's what's cutting edge research right now especially in different types of cancer so yeah mm-hmm. it's really great i can't wait to share it yeah but first here is a quick history of some notable people and moments in the field of cancer epidemiology In 1713, an Italian doctor with the most Italian name, Bernardino Ramazzini. Oh, I just like tasted pepperoni in my mouth. That was very Italian. That's racist or not. But uh, I just really like pepperoni. 
Bernardino Ramazzini observed that nuns developed breast cancer at a higher rate than married women and had lower incidence rates of cervical cancer. His explanation, though, was that these nuns were not having enough sex. And since the breast is a sexual organ, it needs regular attention or else it will decay and become cancerous. What a boob. But, uh, but, oh, wow. Okay. You think he was a, a boob man or, or a butt man? <laughs> mm, good mm. question. Well, it turned out he was partly correct. Breast cancer is in fact related to celibacy, but only because when women become pregnant, their bodies experience changes in hormone output that can sometimes carry a protective effect. The same goes for breastfeeding. Now, that is not to say that if you have lots of babies, you won't get breast cancer. I do not recommend that as a protective factor for breast cancer. But that in groups over long periods of time, you can notice small changes in outcomes like Bernardino Ramazzini. And then, wait, you just called me racist for talking about pepperoni and you keep saying that name like that. Okay. Well, all right. Touche. And also, okay, well, I was just going to say to your point, um, women that use birth control, right, that's hormonal, have a lower incidence of of, um, ovarian cancer because there's less uh, rupture in the ovarian wall when an egg is released. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So so it kind of goes back and forth, right? So you don't necessarily have to, you know, like you said, have lots of babies to not get breast cancer. Right. So, uh, Mr. Ramazzini was also a pioneer in the field of occupational medicine, authoring a book titled Diseases of Workers, which outlined the hazards of chemicals, dust, metals, repetitive motion, and unnatural posture. Pretty ahead of his time. Wow. Do you yeah. remember back, way back in episode one, when, um, we talked about occupational medicine with Dr. Morabia. Yeah. That's how he got his start in public health. Wow. It, it seems like a lot of people, a lot of doctors started to notice um, people's occupation had a correlation with certain health outcomes. Interesting. Yeah, good point. Um, so he actually advocated heavily, and remember, this is in the 1700s, for the inclusion of the question, what is your job, into the doctor's interview of a patient? Wow. Well, he also wrote a chapter called Diseases of the Jews. So maybe let's not idolize this guy too much. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. mean, let's, that's, that's, let's, this, that's for another day. You know what? He <laughs> contributed oh in some ways and negatively contributed in others, which is just, <laughs> right. honestly, a lot of people who did great things back in the day, I mean, had also some crazy ideas about race and religion and women. So. Right. Um, another interesting figure is Percival Pott of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. It's a very English name, It to is be a fair. very <laughs> English name. Um, Percival Pott is attributed at the, as the first scientist to demonstrate that cancer can be caused by an environmental factor. He was a surgeon and noticed an association between exposure to soot and an incidence in cancer in chimney sweeps, later affectionately referred to as chimney sweeps carcinoma. I hope they do that song in the new Mary Poppins, too. Okay. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I think- can't. I, I can see you writing. You should you should contact them. Lin Manuel Miranda is in the Mary Poppins too. Maybe he did a song uh, called Chimney Sweets Carcinoma. Sure, get on that, Quinn okay. Gershwin. I, I will get on that. Um, finally, here is one that everyone should recognize as a carcinogen, aka a cancer causing thing. Um, If I were to grab you off the street and yell in your face, name a thing that causes cancer, besides being alarmed, what would you say? Uh, Oh, cigarettes! Yeah. Um, And when did we first learn that smoking might be bad for you? Uh, 
I mean, wasn't that in the 1950s when the first uh, Surgeon General Surgeon General's report came out? Yeah, that's yeah. part of it. Um, did I hear you say the 1600s? You did not hear me say that, but please do tell about the <laughs> 1600s. It was as early as the 1600s. Oh, wow. In 1604, King James of England put out a written warning against smoking tobacco, saying it was harmful to the eye, nose, brain, and lungs. He also put a heavy tax on imported tobacco. In the 1660s, coalitions of women were formed against tobacco in many countries. They claimed it diminished male virility and advised women not to marry smokers. You know what? Good for them for, like, that's a really great marketing campaign. Not only will it make you impotent, but I I don't want to marry you. Like, those are two great ways back in Mm -hmm. those times to get men's attention. Yeah. In 1620, Thomas Venmer of London warned against smoking, saying it hurts the brain and induces trembling of the limbs and the heart. In 1761, John Hill also a London surgeon, reported ulcerated cancers in two men who had used large quantities of snuff for many years. In 1844, Walter Walsh published a book on cancer, in which he cited smoking as a cause of neoplasia, a fancy word basically meaning abnormal cell growth. So basically, that that tobacco Mm -hmm. companies, man... Yeah. Talk about a cover-up. So, also in the 1800s, chemists isolated the active ingredient in tobacco and named it after Jean Nicot. Does that sound moderately familiar? Who imported tobacco into Europe in the 1500s. What is the active ingredient in tobacco? Nicotine. Yeah. Nicotine, a poison is actually the tobacco plant's version of an insect repellent. Did you know that? I did know that. Um, It discourages herbivores, like insects, from eating the plant. Mm -hmm. So, like you mentioned before, we think of the 1950s and 60s and beyond as when we discovered that smoking was bad for us. But in reality, like when we talked in our episode a few back about lead exposure, we actually knew much, much earlier. Hmm. We just had, you know, there was a lot of profit at stake, which, you know. There was a lot of profit at stake in getting people addicted. Yep. And, yeah, it came came down to making money. (laughs) Remember when they used to tell women to smoke while they were pregnant? Oh, boy, those were the days. It'll help you lose weight. Yes, as well as Call Me Down. Mm Mm-hmm. Virginia Slim. And a martini. Yep, that's a cigarette and a martini. Yep. Yeah, times are a little different now. Yes. So, anyways, um, there are many different kinds of cancers and a lot of different ways one can develop cancer, some of which are preventable. Genetics is a factor, diet is a factor, environment is a factor, occupation is a factor, and sometimes just bad luck is a factor. Uh, So do you have any closing thoughts before we get to our recorded? Um, Well, the one other factor that I think, and this could, I guess, kind of be categorized under bad luck, but uh, infectious disease causes cancer. Oh, that's right. And we actually talk about that during uh, HPV HPV and hepatitis C, Mm. which I did not know that. Um, But yeah, we do talk about that because there is a epidemiologist that that is her particular um, field of research is uh, cancers related to infectious disease. All right. Well, why don't we let them describe it? Yes. Let's go to our recording of Cancer Epidemiology Tea Time at Moffitt Cancer Center. So I'm Lindsay Grove, and today we're going to talk about epidemiology, specifically cancer epidemiology with professionals at Moffitt Cancer Center here in Tampa, Florida. So thank you for inviting our podcast to your tea. Uh, Can each of you please introduce yourselves to our audience? 
Sure. My name is uh, Peter Konetsky. I'm the chairman of the Cancer Epidemiology Department at Moffitt Cancer Center. My name is Nancy Gillis. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Cancer Epidemiology. Awesome. I'm Anna Giuliano, and I'm a faculty member in the Department of Cancer Epidemiology. I'm Stephanie Schmidt. I'm also a faculty member in the Department of Cancer Epidemiology with another appointment in gastrointestinal oncology, which is where my research on colorectal cancer is focused. And I'm Christine Pierce. I'm also a faculty member here in the Cancer Epidemiology Department, and my research is focused on the microbiome. Uh, John Parker, I'm interested in prostate cancer and faculty member. Very cool. Well, thank you again for having our podcast here. So can anyone describe what an epidemiology tea is, and that's T-E-A, not like T-ball or anything like that. Um, and why did Moffitt start doing this? I think I should probably feel that <laughs> question. So I joined Moffitt about three and a half years ago, mm-hmm. and I thought it was important to bring faculty members from all disciplines together for informal discussions, and sometimes these informal discussions are only among faculty members in the cancer epidemiology department. Sometimes we have colleagues from other departments or other programs, even across the street at uh, USF from USF campus visit us. Um, So a way, first of all, to get to know each other better. Sometimes we just talk about personal items. Sometimes we have uh, research or a science-specific topic that we'll discuss. And sometimes people just come with the most recent information that came down from the National Institutes or published in the New York Times, and we'll have an organic discussion. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so... Peter, you forgot to mention the tea and or coffee that we consume. Exactly. <laughs> we, all, we, we bring our tea and, tea and... Tea is always offered, as well as cookies and biscuits, but coffee you have to bring by your well, caffeine and cookies are always a great, you know, fuel for scientific discussion, it right? Is. <laughs> and it's an excuse to have co- today. We're having this conversation in the morning. And it's an excuse to have cookies in the morning. And it's okay. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Go public health, right? <laughs> All right. So, um, so let's just at least talk about what some of your research is on, and maybe, or even just talk about some of the things that you're interested in researching currently. So, does anyone want to start? I can start. Okay. As Peter is shaking his head enthusiastically. <laughs> um, so my research has been kind of a, a recently developed field. It's called the microbiome, and it's really the study of um, bacteria, viruses, fungi, and other microorganisms that reside in and on our bodies that can help or hinder um, our health as we, as we live. And um, my research specifically revolves around how those microorganisms can actually um, help or hinder cancer patients as they receive treatment um, and how they respond to their treatment and whether or not they develop certain toxicities to their treatment. And so um, it's a really interesting field because there's a lot of new knowledge that's being gathered every day. Um, And it's a very interesting field because um, I think there's great potential in the future for things like probiotics um, or prebiotics or even I think some people have heard of fecal microbiome transplants, Um, some great therapeutic potential to be able to manipulate the microbiome in a way that can actually um, make some great impact in, um, in patients' lives. So that's the area of research that I'm focused on. So funny enough, one of our recent episodes was all about poop. Yes, lovely. <laughs> yes, so we, we actually talked to a foodborne epidemiologist, and so we talked mm-hmm. a lot about diarrhea. But, yes, fecal transplants, food. yes. Yeah, particularly with C. difficile. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's currently standard of care in C. difficile infections, and Perfect. so um, it's really, really effective in that particular setting. And so I think that it's got great potential for other settings as well, but obviously more research is needed to really understand that. Great, great. Yeah. See, poop isn't all that bad. No. <laughs> in small doses, right? Yeah. So we actually have um, a small viral repository starting of uh, poop collection here at Moffitt. <laughs> 
on this floor, That's actually, um, that we're currently Wait, seated the poop in. the collection's on this floor? Yeah. <laughs> nope, That's sorry, I mean. that's misinterpreted. Um, <laughs> the poop collection actually occurs in the hospital across the street, but they're in a freezer on this floor. Oh, do they yes. just take it from anyone? The patients actually are patients here at Moffitt Cancer okay. Center who are in the thoracic clinic, so they're receiving um, treatment for immunotherapy, uh, immunotherapy treatment for lung cancer here okay. at Moffitt. Um, and so they're enrolled in a study that um, I'm currently leading okay. to look at the way in which patients are responding to their immunotherapy and looking to see whether or not their gut microbiome um, is associated with that response or not. Very cool, very yeah. cool. What's the method of a transplant? Uh, it's oral? <laughs> so, pill, right? Well, well, traditionally it has been through enema. So we're going to get graphic here. For yes, me, please. We okay. love graphic <laughs> Excellent. descriptions. So, so traditionally it's been through enema. So you would actually have um, a donor. Oftentimes it had been traditionally a family member. Uh, but now there's actually donor agencies that actually um, have, uh, there's one called Open Biome that actually has donors that are, that are screened heavily for, their, um, for different microorganisms and pathogens and such. Um, but so essentially the, the fecal material is taken uh-huh. and put in an enema and inserted rectally into uh-huh. the patient and then deposited there. Um, but there are lots of people who are looking into ways in which you could take it orally, so through a pill. Um, I don't think that those have proven to be as effective yet. But because you have to get through. Correct. You have to get through yeah. the GI system yeah. and all the acids in the stomach, which kill a lot of the bacteria on the way down. And so that hasn't been as effective as the actual um, rectal insertion. Any side effect? Um... <laughs> Rectal discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, you know, that's not my area of expertise, nope. and I've not had one done. Um, sadly, there are people who have tried to do this at home. Oh, no. Oh, and no. it's unfortunate because they're obviously not um, aware that there are really a lot of pathogens that people may have that they may be... Um, you know, undiagnosed infections that uh, really could cause them a lot of harm. And so people are doing these at home and they may um, really acquire a a pretty difficult infection. In fact, there have been some C. diff infections that have been transmitted in that way, unfortunately. Um, So do not try that at home is the message. Do not do fecal enemas at home. No, that is a very, very, very bad thing. Yeah. Um, because what they do in a hospital setting is they screen them heavily, right? They screen the donor material heavily for anything um, that may be potentially hazardous to the patient. Good to know. Wow. Yeah. The more you know. Right. right. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Very interesting. Yeah. So, um, well, I will say I'm amazed. That I, I guess it doesn't surprise me. I shouldn't say I'm amazed that there are, like, fecal donation centers. Yes. I mean... My goodness. Yeah, so what's funny is there are, um, I believe there's on the order of a a few hundred, but I I could be totally off. But there are a select number of individuals located more or less in the Boston area who have been identified as ideal candidates for um, fecal donations. What's the criteria for ideal donor? Um, Sorry. So, uh, so I think it's that they have proven to have, uh, you know, a high quality uh, <laughs> consistency and composition of There's their the Bristol chart, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, They're and that they have they have no parasites in their in their stool, right? They don't have certain pathogens in their stool. But these individuals who have passed all of these stringent criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, are asked to donate frequently, and so and they do, and they get reimbursed for each donation that they give. So there are people who live close and consistently donate their stool to the center. So also, don't just start sending no samples. No, you have no. to be screened for that. Yes. So yes, and usually the USPS have to be will around. thank you for that. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> that is so cool. Poop jokes aside. <laughs> That is awesome. That's awesome. Very cool research. Thank you. Awesome. So does anyone else want to share what they're doing? Yes. Okay. 
So as I mentioned when, in a brief introduction, mm -hmm. my research focuses on colorectal cancer and in two main areas. Um, mm -hmm. One is on genetic epidemiology, which allows us to better understand um, genetic factors that influence individuals' risk of developing cancer. And then on the other side, focusing on post-immune responses in the tumor environment, um, which is a complex combination of tumor cells as well as um, blood vessels and immune cells. So it's not just in your, in your tumor, it's not just cancer cells. There's a lot of support around that as well. So we're trying to understand what influences the diversity of those host immune responses and how can we measure them and then how do they influence outcomes from patients who are who do develop um, colorectal cancer. And probably a good segue, which may be where Anna is um, pointing to maybe me going next, is that Christine and I are actually working on, in that latter context on understanding how the microbiome influences host immune responses in the microenvironment of colorectal cancers. And you know, are they related in some way? A lot of people are focusing on features of the tumor, meaning um, different mutations in, and molecular features of the tumor, um, and those as drivers of how our body's immune response um, targets the cancer. But there hasn't been a lot of focus on how our um, microbial um, co-inhabitants influence that. And they may or may not, but this is a really new and emerging area of research that um, hasn't received a lot of attention and, and may actually um, help to shape what's going on. And this is really important as um, new types of therapies are being developed for colorectal and other cancers. And Christine mentioned immunotherapy, where you're basically leveraging the your, your own body's immune response to help heighten the response against the cancer and cancer fighting. So with all this new development in that area, it's really important to understand what are sort of uh, predictors of toxicities in response to these therapies and understanding not only um, tumor features, but also environmental factors and microbial factors that might influence that. So that's sort of one side of my work and that um, relates closely to what Christine does and we're actually working on a, a funded project together to, to study cool. that area. Very so Stephanie, let me just quickly interrupt. So before you go on to describe some of your other research, Lindsay, I just want to point out that Stephanie just gave a great example in cancer epidemiology of, of typical science, which we call team science. Mm -hmm. have people from distinct disciplines who come together to answer a question which neither one of them really have the expertise or the bandwidth to answer by themselves. So just a, a good example of the you know, general research paradigm that we often incorporate into our research. Right, so it's not just a scientist in a lab coat working alone in a lab somewhere, right? It's coming together, even if it's just coming to an epidemiology tea and talking about and bouncing ideas off of each other and, you know, utilizing the other people that are in their vicinity or even just within their area of science or, or interdisciplinary, you know, Okay, we're ready to go. Okay, so you guys were just kind of talking about coffee. Do we want to talk about that? Sure. Um, we can talk about that and also how it interacts with some of the genetics research that I'm doing. So um, we've published, um, I guess a couple of years ago now, that, and, and this is not just from our group, um, which has a large case control study of um, colorectal cancer and healthy controls in northern Israel. So it's not just in our population, other populations have seen it too, that coffee is associated with a reduced risk of colorectal cancer. And it's not just true for colon cancer, there are a variety of endometrial cancer, a variety of other cancers as well. Um, and so there's a, there have been a lot of discussions as to um, the robustness of those findings in terms of study design. People wondering, is it that coffee consumption actually reduces the, the risk of, of cancer or is, you know, when we're studying these cancer cases, is it that they're reducing their coffee consumption because of their symptoms? And the argument about that is a little bit um, uh, less potent, I guess, in the colorectal cancer setting because coffee typically um, increases colon motility and so it wouldn't be so much of an issue of constipation or um, other concerns that people would really think they would have to modify their coffee consumption. But anyhow, this is sort of a developing and growing field where people are trying to understand what are the influences of coffee and is it caffeine or caffeinated coffee or decaffeinated coffee? What are the elements of the you know hundreds of bioactive compounds that are in coffee that are actually influencing risk? And there was actually a recent paper which before we started this podcast, a few of us were discussing, and someone brought to my attention, that was um, picked up by the New York Times, 
uh, about coffee drinking and mortality in uh, a multinational cohort study of 10 European countries that um, coffee consumption is associated with um, reduced risk of death for various, for various causes. Um, so it's not only associated with risk, but also with outcomes. So it's a really interesting um, area of research, not only specifically for um, colorectal cancer, but a variety of other cancers and other complex diseases. And this sort of is a good segue to some of the other work that I'm doing, because we're trying to understand how um, genetic susceptibility or genetic factors interact with coffee consumption to either increase or decrease risk, as well as outcomes from, from cancer. Lots of stuff. Lots of <laughs> lots of stuff. That's but that's awesome. I mean, obviously, as we just said, you know, um, cancer is, is very multifaceted. So, kind of, ha- in order to find a cure, you kind of have to attack it from you know multiple um, multiple perspectives. We're a full so. service research yeah. department. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. And cancer is a you'll hear the term complex disease, and it truly is complex in a variety of settings. Not just that genes and environment and lifestyle impacted, but also it's it's complex in terms of understanding relationship with, with outcomes and microbes and you know host factors. It's it's a very complex disease. Gotcha. Very cool. So you've heard a lot about treatment and how complex cancer is and what we can do about treatment and what might influence the outcomes um, for cancer patients who are getting treatment. Um, But there are some cancers that we can think about in a very simple way. Um, And those are the cancers that are caused by viruses and microorganisms. Um, and, and, And I say it's simple because compared to the complexity of colorectal cancer or breast cancer where you know, we can't say what the cause is. We can say, hey, you know, here are a bunch of factors that'll increase your risk. Um, but you can't actually put your finger on a single cause and say, you know, if you completely eliminate this cause, then you won't get breast cancer. Now, that's not true for some of the other cancers. So for instance, my work is with the human papillomavirus and the cancers that that virus causes. And we can say, if you eliminate certain types of HPV, we really believe very strongly that we can reduce to a great extent the cancers that that virus causes. Um, so that's very exciting. And you all probably know we have you know, Gardasil 9 on the market. Um, we're trying to increase vaccination of both boys and girls so that we can actually see the benefit of this wonderful technology. Well, there's another cancer that's sort of like that as well. And um, Stephanie and I were just talking about um, the newness of this area, which is looking at hepatitis C virus and hepatocellular carcinoma. Really? Here we go with, you know, in the United States, we've we've been really fortunate. We've made great strides in reducing cancer incidence. We still have a long way to go. I don't want to, you know, pretend that, that we've solved all the problems. But overall, our cancer incidence is going down, except for around six different cancers, one of which is hepatocellular carcinoma, or liver cancer, which is significantly increasing, and it continues to increase. Now, what's interesting about this cancer is what we're finding is that around 50% of those cancers and that increase is due to one virus, which is hepatitis C virus. So you would think, geez, what are you gonna do? We don't have a vaccine against this virus. But as it turns out, we have something else. What we have are what are called direct acting antivirals that unlike the situation with HIV, where you know we treat it as a chronic disease and people are never cured, um, they just live treated um, for their HIV. With HCV, those direct acting antivirals cure the infection. And that's just recently, right? Pretty recent. Yeah. Um, so it used to be, and, and this is why I think there was a lot of hesitancy in screening people for, for the viruses. You know, if you can't offer your patient a reasonable treatment or a cure, um, and, and if you're offering a treatment that really has horrendous side effects and doesn't cure the virus, there's going to be some reluctance to, to accepting that treatment. But now, it's only been in the last, I'd say, two to three years that the direct-acting antivirals became available on the market. And you probably heard they were very, very expensive when they first came out. And this is one of the wonderful things about American business. More pharmaceutical companies have gotten into, into the act. And what we're seeing is 
increasing availability of different um, direct acting antivirals from different companies at reduced cost um, that are um, now providing schedules for treatment that are even easier to complete. Um, so now we're in a situation where there really is no barrier. And so in the, in the state of Florida, for instance, um, health insurance companies will cover the cost of the direct acting antivirals for patients who test positive for hepatitis C virus. Does that include Medicaid? Um, you know? Good question. I need to check the Medicaid, but for sure the HMOs are covering. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, okay, well then who would you screen is the big question, mm -hmm. right? Well, as it turns out, um, fortunately my generation, which is a baby boomer generation, um, uh, is the, the population that's at greatest risk. Um, really? And for a variety of reasons, including that at the time um, that, you know, we were receiving transfusions, the blood supply wasn't screened for hepatitis C virus. So people were getting inadvertently infected and didn't know. And in fact, it's one of those silent infections where people are carrying and are infected with HCV and they won't have symptoms until it develops into a serious chronic infection and cirrhosis starts developing. Um, so our goal, so we said, okay, well, great. We've got a simple way to screen. It's an antibody test. We've got the availability of very um, high potent curable therapies that are completely tolerable. So what's the problem? Well, we said, okay, well, let's see what percent of baby boomers and other at-risk populations are screened. <clears throat> and what we found in preliminary data for our region here in Florida is that it's around 2%. Oh, my goodness. 2%. Now, the other thing that's really cool is unlike other cancer screening tests where it requires multiple tests, like every three years or every 10 years for colonoscopy, this is a once-in-a-lifetime test that simple. Only 2% in our region have been screened for HCV. Um, so what we've done is to start um, a statewide coalition. Um, in fact, we're having our first statewide meeting in October. We finally got the date. It was an act of God to get a date that everybody could agree to. Um, it includes the major cancer centers in the state of Florida um, and other institutions like the Veterans Administration Hospitals. So we, um, what we said is we need to examine what the rate of screening is in the state of Florida. Um, so this is brand new research um, where we're starting to look at for each year since the national recommendations were first issued in 2013, what's happening with screening? Who's screened, who's not screened? But more importantly, what do the providers think about screening? And who among the providers are recommending screening and who or not, and what are their characteristics, and, and then ultimately, geez, isn't there something we can do about this? Um, so we're moving forward with different ideas for um, electronic health record interventions to increase screening, education programs for physicians to increase screening, and so on. Um, so it's brand new, it's just, we, we have pilot grant funding to start this, and a lot of goodwill around the state to reverse those trends here in Florida. That's awesome. I, I will say um, I used to work as an HIV case manager, and so a lot there's a lot of co-infections yes. yeah. in people with HIV, and it, it was interesting to me because um, a lot of hepatitis lays latent for a while. I mean, I had clients that, you know, they knew that they had hepatitis, but they, they're like, oh, you know, I haven't had a flare-up or anything like that, but when it hits, it's really bad, and so when... Um, this hepatitis C treatment came out. I mean, it was seriously a godsend. People were really excited about it, um, especially having a co-infection, you know. So among the infectious disease physicians who treat HIV, they're super aware of the co-infection mm -hmm. problem. And it turns out that the HIV population is actually the best managed it's, population yeah. of, of all the at-risk I believe groups. that. Um, and so really forms a nice model for what we should be doing for the other at-risk groups. And you're, you're, you pointed out something really important. Um, the infection does stay silent, um, but once it progresses to cirrhosis, it will complicate the treatment quite a bit. So if we can catch the infection prior to clinical symptoms, um, the treatment really is relatively simple and very tolerable. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, especially 
you know, like you said, one of the biggest at-risk groups is baby boomers, you know. Um, I think about my own parents and how, who, I mean, who knows? I mean, everybody should definitely be tested, especially since it's so simple and there is an actual cure for it. So it's just a lot of people, I think, when they hear hepatitis, they think, well, I didn't do drugs or I, you know, I didn't have a shady tattoo or, you know. So, but it's interesting that that's, that one of the, um, one of the modes of transmission was transfusions. Right. So. Right. I mean, um, so hepatitis C used to be the non-A, non-B. Yeah. Um, hepatitis yeah. virus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For those of yeah. you old enough to remember that, <laughs> everybody's young around the table. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, and we keep learning. Uh, and, and actually, that brings me to the, to the next point. There are probably other unidentified viruses that for a very long time have been contributing to the causes of, of multiple cancers that we just haven't identified yet. Um, so the hepatitis C virus story is a nice story. Um, we knew there was this virus. Um, we didn't know what to call it. It wasn't well characterized. It used to be non-A, non-B. Um, and it took you know a couple of decades of research to finally identify it and then move forward to develop these treatments. Um, so we continue. The knowledge grows. Um, and hopefully, as we progress with it, we can actually get it out into populations to, to make that difference. And, and that's, that is our goal right now. Yeah, another uh, interesting factor with the liver cancer is in Asian cases are uh, mostly due to HPV, hepatitis B virus. Correct. And, and I'm, it's still probably true that the most first generation Asian Americans who had a liver cancer is probably due to by HPV. And actually, uh, last week, uh, one of our church members, and he found uh, like three inches of uh, the mass in his liver. He had a history of HPV, and so I talked to with uh, Marvin. And then he decided to go to get the treatment at Korea because there's a more yeah, yeah. experience on that, on HPV-induced uh, uh, um, cancer. So, so what Jung is referring to is, um, you know, historically it was hepatitis B virus that was a major um, cause of liver cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, mean, I don't know if everybody's aware of this, but one of the first subunit vaccines, and actually it's a real first cancer vaccine, was a vaccine that was directed against hepatitis B virus. Um, and like with any new technology and any new innovation, not all countries pick up on that um, at the same time. And so what happens is as the vaccine, this is a vaccine that will prevent infection with hepatitis B, Mm -hmm. which ultimately would prevent hepatitis B-associated liver cancer. Um, So for for populations that were too old to receive the vaccine, they're still going to be at risk. They were probably already infected with hep B. And then you have other countries that haven't rolled out hepatitis B vaccination programs as, as well as we have in the United States, for instance. Um, and for the countries that have rolled it out well, there has been a significant decline in the cancer incidence. So it shows you the power of public health, and it shows you the power of political commitment to, to um, put resources, both economic resources and clinical resources, behind a campaign to prevent cancer with a vaccine. Very exciting. That kind of um, <clears throat> reminds me a little bit, and I would love to hear your um, opinion on this, but I know that, um, is it Cuba has a lung cancer vaccine? Yes. yes. Is that, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so I was in Cuba last year, and I met with the immunology group that had developed that. They're, they're um, envisioning treatment um, not for a cure, mm-hmm. uh, which is typically what we go for in the United States. Right. So you try to, you know, essentially surgically remove the tumor and then treat with radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Um, but their idea is to treat cancer, and in this case, lung cancer is a chronic disease, um, which is to manage the tumor so that it's it's at a size that doesn't interfere with function, but it's it's still there. Um, and so their vaccine is essentially an immune-based vaccine to stabilize and to prevent the tumor from progressing. Interesting. It's a very interesting concept, um, and it really uh, comes from the, the idea that they don't have the resources to throw, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
first line, second line, third line chemotherapy, which is very expensive to their patients. Um, but what they can do is probably come up with a simple technology like a vaccine to manage the case so that you can have a person live a very long life but not completely be cured. I'm really glad that you clarified that because I think when people hear that, oh my gosh, Cuba has a lung cancer vaccine, when we think of vaccines, we think of prevention, right? Like completely preventing cancer. But using it as a tool for immunotherapy, I mean, I would have never guessed that. So I'm glad that you clarified that because I think a lot of people have misconceptions you know, um, especially in the tobacco arena, because they think, oh my right. gosh, if everyone got this vaccine, then maybe we wouldn't have so many tobacco-related cancers. Right. But this is not a prevention vaccine. Right. It's a treatment vaccine. And in fact, we have uh, uh, several different investigators here at Moffitt that are working on different types of treatment vaccines. Um, so for instance, um, a group of our colleagues are working on cell-based vaccines, <coughs> so dendritic cell vaccines. Um, then there are others who are working on essentially genetically retooling the, um, the immune cells to direct it at specific tumors that a patient has using CAR T therapies as vaccines. Um, so there are a lot of different approaches to um, vaccine therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the, in the human papillomavirus sphere, there are therapeutic vaccines that, that are being developed to treat let's say, women who have a high-grade cervical dysplasia or even early cancer. And this is another huge area that's very, very exciting for research here at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank What's you. What's the efficacy of the uh, Cuban vaccine? Oh, I, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I, in Cuba's FDA licensed the vaccine after, I think, just a phase two trial. Um, So I can't tell you with phase three data what that efficacy is. Um, And they actually are collaborating with Roswell Park Cancer Center to um, test their vaccine here in the United States now. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, they're able, I mean, you know, we we have very strict guidelines in the United States about what we license. Um, And and although we do have fast tracks for FDA, uh, other countries are able to do things experimentally that that help to inform what maybe we can do in the future. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about this way. I mean, think about the economic uh, the level or the money spent on healthcare in right. Cuba and U.S. Correct. And it's probably like a twenty times difference, mm-hmm. but the lifespan is almost the same. Yes. So yeah. they are doing really well, whatever yeah. they do. Yeah. Yeah. I actually just recently went to Cuba in March, um, and it was incredible. I mean, the culture of health down there is significantly different from the United States. Um, I happened to have, like, had allergies when I went down there, so my, one of my eyes was super red, and they were like, you need to go to a doctor right now. Every single person that I encountered while I was down there was like, just go to a doctor. Like, they were very, they're all about hygiene and people utilizing the healthcare system, which is interesting coming from the United States where people are like, well, I don't know if I need to go to urgent care right now. You know, I'll wait it out. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not a big deal, but, um, and they're very proud of their, um, of their healthcare system down there. So. so did you go and get the treatment? I didn't know. Cause it was, I was just like, no, 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 no. it's fine. It's just allergies. I swear. Um, no, and luckily I didn't have to use the, the healthcare system down there. We actually went down there to go rock climbing. So so that was good that I didn't end up needing any medical treatment. So because that would have been really uh, bad, if, especially if it was from rock climbing. So, uh, but yeah, and you're right. Like they're they're very very healthy. I mean, we saw we had to uh, walk through some farms to be able to get to um, the cliffs that we wanted to climb. And you have 80 year old men hand plowing. I mean, farmland. It, it, it's incredible. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, you well, know, you know, we've gotten um, too much technology, so you don't have to move. It's like that movie, um, uh, the robot movie. Oh, um, Wally. Wally. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's I. Right. It's the kiss of death, and it, we're all talking about that. The sitting is a new smoking. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And so that's a good example of sometimes the lowest tech is what keeps you the healthiest. Yeah, exactly. Does anyone else want to talk about their research? Okay. 
Yeah, I certainly will okay. give five minutes about research since we were talking about uh, prevention. So my research historically has focused on uh, inherited genetics to developing melanoma, melanoma risk, um, but also to take a look at whether some of those inherited genetics could be important in progression of disease. Uh, when I came to Moffitt, I started to be more interested in how to translate some of those results into public health and clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I currently have an intervention that's based on feedback of genetic information that's known to be robustly associated with risk of melanoma to see whether individuals who receive information saying, hey, you have inherited variants in this particular gene that puts you at increased risk for melanoma, whether or not they change primary prevention behaviors, which would be sun avoidance, wearing a hat, wearing sunscreen ritually, or secondary prevention behaviors, which would be doing skin self-examinations or going to a clinician or professional for a skin examination. Um, Because we know, based on national surveys, that both of those types of skin cancer prevention behaviors are fairly poorly practiced routinely in the United States. And it's very significant, especially here in Florida, that those things be practiced. And particularly, <laughs> you know, with the upswing in indoor tanning oh, and yeah. our very high prevalence of very strong UV index throughout most of the year, it's really important to do skin cancer and melanoma prevention. That's awesome. That's great. And I, I think that... Um, it, it, that brings up a good point about translation of research into practice and how how a lot of what you do here in, in cancer epidemiology helps inform practice, right? And how important that is. And sometimes it does get, unfortunately, lost in translation, you know, because it takes years to develop, yeah, right? Indeed. I, I think for most of us in the department and in the program, that's our end game. Our end game is to actually have research that impacts public health or clinical practice. And otherwise, we kind of fall short of the public health aspect of what epidemiology is. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you all for sharing. So usually at the end of an episode, we always ask everyone what they're reading or what TV show they're enjoying, just because we know you're all humans. We know you don't live here at Moffitt, even though I'm sure sometimes it feels like it. Um, but we also just kind of want to know what you're interested in. So, does anyone want to start? Okay, full transparency. I just finished binge-watching the fourth season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on Netflix. Ooh, I haven't started that series, <laughs> but it looks really good. I've enjoyed it. It's really good. Anyone else? I, oh, no. I um, just started the last season of Orange is the New Black. Oh, I'm a little late to the game on that one, but once I started, I was fucked. Mm-hmm. It's really good. We haven't started that uh, that last season yet, uh-huh. but but I heard like the first episode. It's just like in your face. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No spoilers, but no, no spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> I was just kind of shocked. I was like, oh, this is not at all what I expected it to be, but in a fantastic way. Okay, good. That's yes. good. It's a good teaser. Yeah. I'm watching the most recent season of House of Cards. Even though I don't really like the show, now I want to see it through to the yeah. end. So, I mean, it's just a little disturbing in some ways. And Guilty Pleasure, The Bachelorette, which I'm embarrassed to admit. <laughs> you would be surprised it. how many people admit that, though. So you're not alone. Yeah. And a lot of people are always like, Guilty Pleasure. You might be it's alone like, no. at this table. Oh! <laughs> oh! No. no. <laughs> I haven't seen Oh, no. Oh, it's terrible. I've seen about three episodes. Uh, I fast forward through a lot of it, but, you know, I just want to see Gotcha. I don't watch much TV. Um, I am anxiously anticipating the new season of Stranger Things. Yes. Which I found out since October 27th. Yes. Mark your calendars. Uh, I watched the Home Run Derby last night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you mean the All-Star? No, no. I is it a DVR everything. Is it so a- watched... Movie? The Home Run Derby, no, they do it every year. Oh. Um, it's just like all the top baseball players, and it's how many home runs can you hit in four minutes. So oh. it's and it's actually thing, pretty though. exciting to watch, 
especially if you're eating hot dogs at the same time. <laughs> so American. Yeah. yeah. I get confused yeah. between I'm the baseball and the horse part. I was like, derby, horse. <laughs> uh, so people are hitting baseballs on top of horses. I would no. love that. Now, that, that would be entertaining. That would be a really? show. Isn't that called, no, like, polo? No, no, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's technically polo. Maybe. Yes. You're right. They've already invented it. Darn it. <laughs> Darn it. And John, what have you been watching? Oh, uh, well, it's kind of a little bit embarrassing. And last week, I went to uh, the vacation in Canada. It's a Prince Edward Island. Oh, yeah. And there's a famous place for, like, what, uh, red hair and, and Green Gable. Oh, yeah. Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, yeah and, so, and that place was there, and I was there. And that was, cool. that was, like, National Park of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> interesting. And then there's a... Episode there in Netflix, yeah, so I right. saw few things. So that's real. I've heard, Prince but Edward that's a really like girl thing. So that's uh, why I <laughs> try not to reveal that. that. <laughs> Did you have muscles while you were there? Oh, muscle and lobster. And oh, good. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was, it was it was really nice. I've heard Prince Edward Island is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Nice. So I find it interesting that. We all come and sit on things that we watch instead of read. Because you do a lot question. of reading at work. Or right? read. What do I? What have I been watching? No, no the no, question no. was the what question do we was read? Oh, watch or read. Watch yeah, or watch read. or read. Yeah. yeah. If you want to talk about what you're reading, that's cool too. But well, I just found it interesting that everyone picked watching, and I I tend to watch more than I read at the moment just because my eyes get super tired from reading at work and on the computer all day. You're so. Right. It's interesting to see that or hear that everyone else is. Yeah, so it's it's good to know that you guys aren't just like super nerds, yeah. just <laughs> reading all the time. And you're like, you know, I mean, I know you said you don't do a lot of you know watching television, but that's no, it's because she's still a post op. Uh, <laughs> it's because I'm not home much. Oh, I'd yeah. rather be out doing things. Yeah, especially well, it is hard this time of year. But it's so yeah. hot. Yeah. Oh, it's oh yeah, it's miserable. It's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, we've, um, one of the things that we've been doing to force ourselves to get out of the house is we've been, you guys have heard of all the springs, right? In yeah. Florida? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So Gorgeous. incredible. Do you have yeah. a favorite one? Um, currently, our favorite one, we actually just went to Chassahawiska State Park. Oh, did you do the underwater caves? Yeah, it I was can't. so fun. It I was so can't. fun. Yeah. Felt like a little mermaid. It was so great. Yeah. Oh, it's They're not, it's not as that. scary as you think. I was really scared. Mm-hmm. But you could pop up. I mean, there's lots of yeah. places to pop up. Could also take the wrong. Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you watching too much movie? <laughs> <laughs> people have died going through those caves. Oh, for sure. Usually, younger caves. people who have drank too much yes. alcohol. Yes. But nonetheless, people have died. Okay. Yeah, and but actually, it is an awesome. It's a beautiful. I've gone with people who take cameras. Yep. And film it as they go down, and then show it to me afterwards, <laughs> and then I can ooh and ah over them right. going through it. It's a, yep, you, you just, read take just like way. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I will say that a good one to float down is Rainbow River. Yep. I mean, perfect, yep. and it's so clean, so clear. Um, you all you need is a tube. Yep. I mean, seriously, all you yeah. you can actually just have a pool noodle and you'd be fine. Yeah. And the <laughs> alligators <laughs> will not bother you. Nope, not Why? at all. No. Why? Why? Well, they just won't bother you. They're, they're on just, that river. Yeah. They just won't bother you. Oh, that's terrifying. Well. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're technically yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we saw an alligator when we were on Rainbow River, but it was like a baby. But it, it yeah. just kind of... They stay off to the side. Back, yeah. you know, well, Crystal River yes. is really well known for the manatees. Okay. In the winter, sometimes they have to close... It's a mermaid the, there, right? The park, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. The springs, yeah. because yeah. there's yeah. so many there. Yeah. Yeah, I took I took my kids when they yeah. were young. <laughs> I want to go and see the mermaids. Oh, okay. I definitely want to go. Yeah, I've not seen the show. Thanks for listening to Viral. This episode, and actually this entire podcast, is written and produced by Lindsay Grove, that's me, and Quinn Lundquist. We want to give a special thanks, especially in this episode, to Peter Konetsky and his team of awesome epidemiologists at the Moffitt Cancer Center. And finally, our song is written by the Quick and the Easy Boys. Thanks for listening. Today's public health fact, cancer clusters. No, they're not the newest cereal from Kellogg's. The National Cancer Institute defines a cancer cluster 
as the occurrence of a greater-than-expected number of cancer cases among a group of people in a defined geographic area over a specific time period. They can help scientists identify cancer-causing substances or environmental factors. For example, in the early 1970s, a cluster of cases of a rare liver cancer was detected among workers in a chemical plant. Further investigation showed that the workers were all exposed to vinyl chloride and that the workers in other plants that used vinyl chloride also had an increased rate of liver cancer. Exposure to vinyl chloride is now known to be a major risk factor for cancer.